0: This is Friends and Benefits, a podcast hosted by Reward Strategies editor, Amber Ainsley Pritchard, and you may have guessed it, her Friends and Benefits. Stay tuned to find out what's hot, what's not, and what's happening in the world of pay and reward. Good morning, afternoon, or evening. It's me, Amber Ainsley Pritchard, editor of Reward Strategy, with a brand spanking new episode of Friends and Benefits. Joining me today is the fantastic Debbie Bullock, who is the wellbeing lead at Aviva. Debbie, how are you?
1: Very well, thank you. Very well. Nice to nice to be here. Well, thank
0: you for joining us. So let's get struck in straight away. I really want to know how you came to work in the HR and people profession as you went from being a marketer into corporate social responsibility.
1: So I've worked for Aviva since I left school um, at 16, so quite a while. But one of the benefits of working for a large organisation is there are lots of job opportunities. And the role for the wellbeing lead was advertised. And because I'm really passionate about people, and how people contribute to the success of an organisation, and wellbeing being a key part for that, um, I applied. So that's how I ended up in people function. But I think because people are the lifeblood of, of businesses, and People function as such, therefore, is really important to the commercial success of an organisation. It puts you right in the heart of what the company does. So because I'm a people person, I like to make a difference. There wasn't really a a better place to be.
0: Makes complete sense. And of course, like you say, people are the biggest asset to a company and the most expensive. So you've got to look after them properly. Quite right. And what does a typical day look like for you as well being leader EVA?
1: There isn't really a typical day. And that's one of the things I really like about the role, actually. It's really varied. So I might be working on the long-term strategy uh, or looking at data from our programs or about the well-being of our colleagues or looking at outside trends. Another day, I might spend some time sharing best practice with partner organizations or presenting to teams in the business. I might be engaging with senior stakeholders. And then, of course, there's the more admin side of the role. So I might be checking budgets and reviewing external supplier agreements and procurement kind of element. And then as well, I manage a team. So there's the leadership element of managing a team with the role as well. So really varied. But that, that's part of what creates the challenge. And that's part of what I love about the job.
0: Well, you've got plenty on your plate for sure. And um, you've got a team to look after, as you mentioned. So how many people are in your team and who do you report into?
1: So there are three other colleagues in the Wellbeing at Aviva team, as well as myself, and we're all focused on supporting and delivering our Wellbeing at Aviva programme. And we sit and I report to our Director of People Services within the people function. But I also have regular contact with our Chief People Officer and also the Business Unit People Directors, as well as a, a regular contact group. But my actual reporting line is our Director of People Services.
0: And how many people are you serving at Aviva?
1: So we have 16,000 people employed in the UK, which is my uh, mine and the team's remit for the Wellbeing at Aviva program. We do connect and share best practice and resources and information of the Wellbeing program with our colleagues in Canada and Ireland as well. So that increases that reach slightly to about 24,000 colleagues. But also what I genuinely believe about the Wellbeing program is the fact that because when you're impacting the well-being of an individual it has a knock-on impact for their families if they're well and they feel supported at work that has a knock-on impact and some of the services we offer are actually available to family as well so while we directly serve 16,000 people there is a wider impact on top of that as well.
0: Yeah that totally makes sense I've not really heard anyone explain it in that way before when I've asked how many employees they're serving but you make a very valid point it's not just them it's their immediate family and wider family sometimes as well.
1: Yeah, very much so.
0: And in the latest issue of Reward Strategy Magazine, so issue 228, we looked at the importance of companies having a social purpose. Would you say corporate social responsibility or green policies, ESG policies, are crucial as part of an employee well-being strategy?
1: I think it is because the culture of an organisation can really impact on the well-being of the people who work there. So while it might not be directly well-being related, it it all works together. So the purpose and the values and the culture of that organisation plays that bigger role. Um, It impacts your interaction with customers, with shareholders, with partners, but also with colleagues too. And creating that sustainable future really supports everyone's well-being. And there are some more tangible direct links as well from a corporate responsibility perspective, certainly. So If you take volunteering, for example, going out and doing something good for someone else is scientifically proven to improve your own well-being. And not only that, but if you feel when you come to work your role has a purpose, Mm -hmm. so social purpose-driven organizations, and you know you're making a difference, that purpose can drive a positive well-being. And at Aviva, we're lucky that our purpose is with you today for a better tomorrow, and we provide that protection and support for people. So so we can have that embedded in our well-being programme.
0: Yeah, and I think younger generations coming into the workplace are looking for companies to have a social purpose when they join and for, the, for them to have opportunities to be able to go out and do good, whether those are the volunteer days or being able to contribute to a cause. But I think post-pandemic, people are also, not just younger generations, all generations, are going to want to be working for companies where there is a purpose because we've seen how much we can help over this last year you know, the NHS and other charities supporting those who have been terribly affected by COVID-19. I think it's going to become more and more important.
1: Yeah, and knowing your job makes a difference, helps you get out of bed on the morning and go to work.
0: Yeah, completely. I would completely agree. So I know Aviva is obviously really proactive in the well-being space and in terms of its people strategies, because we spoke a little bit about this at the summit last year. Can you tell me a little bit more about your diversity and inclusion policies? Because I know we picked up a little bit on the pronouns and, you know, the wording you use at Aviva. So if you can just go into that for a little bit.
1: Yes, yeah, certainly. So at Aviva, the important thing is that everyone is be, is able to be themselves, if you like, and bring their best self to work uh, and creating an, an inclusive culture where everyone can thrive and do their best work. and, and inclusion underpins that and that underpins well-being if you can't do that then your well-being is not going to be in a great space so we do work uh, closely with our diversity and inclusion colleagues we offer a range of supporting policies you know that could be equal parental leave carers leave flexible and smart working but we also have six employee resource groups to help shape the organization's path along that route so we call them aviva communities and they're focused on Balance, um, which is about gender, Origins, which is about religion and culture and social mobility, Pride, which is LGBTQ plus network, Aviva Abilities, which is about different abilities, whether that be physical disabilities or neurodiversity, Carers, which it could be about parents or caring for other elements, and Aviva Generations, which is about being an equal age employer. And they raise the profile of and support activities and challenge the organisation across these topics. And certainly, so for example, when when we talk about things like menopause, for example, which enables us to be a great age employer, we also make sure we refer to people who experience the menopause rather than saying women, because actually gender fluid people, trans people, etc. could experience the menopause. We also encourage colleagues to put their preferred pronouns and name pronunciations in their MS teams descriptions or in their email signatures. And that just normalizes it for everyone so that it becomes a normal part of, of of how we talk. So it doesn't feel different if you're having to explain what your pronouns are.
0: Yeah. And I think that's, you know, that's what more and more organizations need to be doing. I'm starting to see more people do it individually on LinkedIn but I think it needs to be company-wide initiatives. So it does normalize and remove those stigmas, like you say. Before we get into some more specific areas of well-being and speaking about the menopause and those sort of topics, I want to take a short ad break, but we'll be back in a moment.
1: It's me again, Ben Miller, the Commercial Director for Reward Strategy. And I wanted to alert you to the fact that the Pay Honorable Conference is nearly here. In 2020, the event was postponed due to the pandemic, but it's back again at its usual time of year, June. So we can discuss tax year changes, budget updates and annual pay reviews whilst they're still fresh in your mind. On June 22nd and 23rd, the Payroll and Award Reward Conference will take place at a fantastic London TV studio. Check out the Reward Strategy website for up-to-date agendas and reach out to me if you're interested in speaking, sponsoring or attending. Find my details on this podcast or look me up on LinkedIn. I look forward to catching up soon, but for now, I'll get you back to listening to Amber and her friend in benefits.
0: And we're back in the room. So, Debbie, we were just speaking about the menopause and diversity and inclusion. And these were some topics that we spoke about at the summit last year, as mentioned. We focused on how employees can be supported going through health conditions and medical treatments, such as menopause and fertility treatment. What can employers offer around this? Is it extra time off, financial support or what do you guys offer around this?
1: I think the most important thing, first and foremost, is actually to have a workplace which offers a safe space where people feel they can be open and discuss some of these things. A psychologically safe space. And this can apply to anything from work activities to health. I think you need to be able to feel confident in sharing information, whether that be about your mental, physical or financial well-being. And once you have that confidence that you can do that in an organisation and you'll be heard and not penalised, that starts to remove the taboos previously experienced. And that applies to anything that might have been previously discussed in what you might have called hushed tones, Mm -hmm. if at all. And I think once you've got that, safe space and that culture of openness and you're looking at what support can be offered the first part of call is often the understanding by the individual's leader so looking to provide training and information for those leaders so that they know how to respond if someone does bring any of those issues to them and then after that you can create and look and consider advice and support services beyond that for any individual element whether you know what whatever that be might be that people have raised. So you can have a number of different support services depending on the issue. But the the fundamental you need first and foremost is a safe space to be able to feel confident to mention it and it won't impact your working career. And then the second is supporting line managers to understand how to respond. And those are the most appropriate thing to do. And then we've built, so for example, at Aviva, we provide menopause support to colleagues through a dedicated app where you can get specialist advice. We provide appropriate pay time off for fertility treatment. We provide training for leaders on on mental health and how to respond. And internal connections are also another way you can support that. So whether that's self-led groups of like-minded or impacted people who can support each other and providing a space and, a, and tools for that to happen is another way you can support colleagues.
0: Yeah, I think the most important thing, you say, is creating that environment where colleagues feel they can come and talk to their employers or line managers about it. And more and more employers are focusing on the menopause and fertility treatments. Channel 4 has just launched a pregnancy loss policy, which hopefully more companies will take up now as well. But there's many more subjects which need to be focused on and have a strategy in the workplace because you don't want to feel like you're excluding anyone. And one area which i'm seeing more and more in america is gender realignment and you know helping for the surgery costs and leave like goldman sachs have been paying for their employees gender reassignment surgery since 2008 can you see that becoming more popular in the uk
1: i think there's there's a balance and i think the more we become open about a number of things whether all organisations would be able to fund medical procedures is is another is another query you know where do you draw the line at what you do fund and don't fund uh, certainly at Aviva we support colleagues who want to transition and we have a transitioning at work policy and uh, frequently asked questions documents to support both colleagues and leaders and individuals can also seek support from things like the employee assistance program and our uh, Aviva community Aviva Pride and I think as long as you've got it goes back to this psychologically safe space where you can discuss feel that you can discuss it and that those changes can happen whether organizations choose to fund it, it each individual organization might have different areas of focus but but part of that is is based on the needs of the organization as well and the unique groups of individuals well-being will become more tailored and personalized over time i think
0: yeah i think employers just need to streamline their approach if they can't do one for one group and not for another if that makes sense so I think that will be key. But hopefully, yeah, well-being is being picked up more and more by employers now and more than just a tick box exercise over the pandemic, rather than just saying, oh, yeah, we support your well-being. They're actually being more active. And Aviva's been that way for a long time. So that's fantastic. And in terms of workplace taboos, I mean, the menopause and fertility um, treatments, they've been seen as taboos for a long while. What other workplace taboos would you say exist today?
1: I think we've got still got a long way to go in many organisations to talk openly about some of those topics you've mentioned. So while strides are being made, I think there are still taboos around. So Channel 4's um, announcement this week on their pregnancy loss policy. So uh, miscarriage and baby loss and bereavement and grief in general. Men's health is another one. Periods. You know, we, we still don't talk about that enough. But equally, we have to recognise that not everyone wants to talk about these things in the workplace either, and that's okay too. And for for sake of repeating myself, if you've got a culture where people feel that they can talk about anything, then then that will create that, uh, help us remove the taboos that we're talking about, and people will feel equally supported whatever the issue that they're raising. And I think there's an element of some issues – Get highlighted more broadly in society. So maybe twenty or thirty years ago, we wouldn't have talked about cancer as openly, you know. But it had its moment where it became okay to talk about it, and that's normalised. Alzheimer's and dementia was another thing that perhaps wasn't as frequently talked about, but got some senior and high-profile celebrities and people in power talking about it. And we're in that similar phase around mental health right now, you know, with the work the some of the younger royals have done and sports professionals and that kind of thing bringing mental health to the forefront of everyday society and that gets replicated in the workplace quite often so I think sometimes the workplace can lead in removing the taboos about these subjects other times they follow broader society so it's an element of keeping up with those trends really and and as each issue has its moment in the sun
0: I completely agree and you did mention male mental health there and that's something I wanted to pick up on because there's been much news coverage on male mental health during the pandemic and how that's been and all the statistics have increased in the amount of male suicides and those contacting charities for help. Have you guys been doing anything over lockdown to raise this issue or have you just been doing mental health as a whole looking at strategies there?
1: Yeah so in many workplace environments, some more than others, there's still a, a culture of a man-up image mm. where men don't feel they can talk about their physical or their mental health. And this is a culture that has to change. Uh, and as you mentioned, the, the involvement of high-profile sports players is, is bringing the conversation around male mental health more to light. And there's some great work being done by some organisations such as Men's Sheds and another you know, male mental health uh, focus. But, but possibly not enough. And it's about creating that psychologically safe space where men, as much as anyone else feel, they can open up and talk about what's bothering them. At Aviva, one of the things we make sure we do is when we talk about mental health and we have a lot of first-person stories being shared, we make sure we have a breadth of stories. So senior male leaders, senior female leaders, people who are gender-fluid, people who are just starting out on their career so we try and make sure we have a really broad range of people talking about their personal experiences so that people can find and identify with someone like them so rather than having a tailored male mental health campaign we try and make sure our campaigns at Aviva are inclusive of everyone by showcasing someone like you
0: I mean, I think that's a fantastic approach and the right approach as well, rather than separating the different groups. So, yeah, that's that's amazing. I mean, I'm really impressed with everything aviva has been doing since we first got in contact last year. And we could have talked for hours, I think, on those panels at the summit in 2020. So hopefully we can explore some of those issues further, you know, in another podcast or in the magazine, because I'm sure there is much more ground to cover.
1: I'm always happy to talk about
0: well-being, always. (laughs) Good, you'll be roped in now to the next conference, Debbie. (laughs) So moving away a little bit from well-being or mental health and well-being and looking at financial well-being, obviously the pandemic with many people on furlough, there's been some people who've done really well and managed to save, but some people who have struggled with their finances. And I think there's more need from an employer on financial education. And I'm really... I'm yet to see any employers really shouting out about their financial education strategies. Do you guys at Aviva have anything on that front?
1: Yeah, so so we haven't obviously been a financial services organisation. You know, there, there's sometimes a misconception that all employees within a financial services organisation must be, you know, have their financial well-being on point and know everything there is about financial services. But that's not always the case. And while we haven't furloughed any colleagues during the pandemic, one of the first things we wanted to do was provide some reassurance for colleagues about their position so that that helped with their financial well-being. But financial well-being has always been a core pillar of uh, our program at Aviva. We provide financial education for our colleagues across a range of different subjects, whether that's about benefits that you get because you work for Aviva, so share schemes and the company pension. So we do education sessions on those. But we also offer broader education seminars on topics such as budgeting, buying your first house, whether you should move versus improve, what are, what are the differences, and understanding things like a credit score. Because if you're lucky enough to maybe have had parents who, who gave you that kind of information or you can ask for advice, that's great. But if you if that wasn't a topic you discussed in your family and you certainly not often taught it at school, how how do you know that kind of stuff? So we've tried to help educate our colleagues on that. But we also offer three life stage seminars as well because different things apply in different stages of life. So we have an early careers perspective seminar. We have a midlife MOT, as we call it, and a My Retirement, My Way seminar, which if you're coming up to the phase of your life when you're thinking about retirement, you can chat through your financial position then. And again, this is then backed up Going back to having the fundamentals in place, because all that's great, but if you don't have the fundamentals in place, we back that up with core policies. So we've, played the, we've paid the real living wage from the Living Wage Foundation to all our colleagues, whether that be London Living Wage or the um, National Living Wage. And we were also one of the first companies to sign up to be a living hours employer. So that was since October 2020, which means we provide at least four weeks notice of shift patterns and the guaranteed payment if shifts are cancelled within this notice period. And that kind of underpinning of basic policies is what creates the financial security and well-being that you need, that you can then build on with the other education stuff. Yeah, it's got to be a holistic approach. Yeah, and, and financial well-being has a direct impact on your mental and physical well-being so it's as important that you address and look at that. So so it, it is a quieter area and sometimes people shy away from it because it's another one of those taboos that we don't talk about in the UK. But actually, it has a, a massive impact, especially financial distress on your physical and your mental well-being. It impacts your sleep and, and so many things. So it, It should be cast as part of a wider programme.
0: And it in turn affects productivity in the workplace. I've seen many studies to show how much time out of the day those who are financially struggling will take to actually look at their finances and try and go through them and see what they can do whilst they should be working. So really a company should be thinking about it at that forefront. They want to educate and make sure their employees are financially well so they aren't taking that time out of their working day to stress, worry and organise their finances
1: very much we always say a happy employee is a productive employee so whatever is making them unhappy whether that's physical mental or financial we need to help them address that
0: yeah completely and in terms of well-being as a whole and strategies in that area what can you see gaining popularity in the next few years something that's already ongoing or maybe something new you're going to see enter the space what would you say
1: I think there's an element of um, accessing biometric information about your own health that's rising generally in society, not just through workplace wellbeing. And for those who are interested in this, this could evolve from, you know, your current digital wearable tech and that kind of stuff that's popular now. That said, for me, that's always likely to be taken up by people who are already focused on their wellbeing. So if you like, that'll help help the fit get fitter. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that workplace well-being and the strategies need to start considering is how to reach the hard-to-reach people, those who maybe aren't yet engaged in supporting their own well-being and, and trying to help everyone understand what the organisation can offer them to help them help themselves. That aside, um, when you talk about what what is still going to remain a focus, the pandemic could have a long-term impact on individuals' well-being. And I think anyone who thinks you know that things will improve when lockdown ends, I, I think is, is short-sighted. I think the impact is going to be for quite a long time, let alone the long-term unknown impacts of long COVID, but also the mental wellbeing impact from what we've had over the last, and, and dealt with over the last 15 to 16 months. So I think um, that, and then the final thing would probably be personalisation. So as we individually try and address our own well-being needs, there's an element for how you tailor that support in the future as a workplace um, because the needs of one group of people may be very different from another. And how do we look to meet all those needs but within a commercial setting because you can't do everything forever. You can't, you know, there's an element of how much you can do. Um, So, yeah, I think the personalisation of well-being is something that will come to the far as well in the future that's fantastic
0: i really think those are three key areas and interesting areas as well because in terms of covid we're probably going to see research and studies in the next year but we need to be waiting i think probably even five ten years to see the real effect that's had on employees and people and in terms of the biometric data i think that will also be picked up more like you say because i'm seeing more and more about the gender health gap as well so i'm sure employees especially those which are focused on the health you know, and the assurance sector like you guys are, that's probably going to become more of a focus anyway.
1: If only we had a crystal ball.
0: Oh, if only. I don't think I'd want to look into it at this point anyway. Just no more lockdowns, please. (laughs) So my final question for you, Debbie, is what would you be doing if you weren't in the HR and people profession?
1: Well, now, when I was a kid, when I was younger, I always wanted to be a policewoman. That was my dream career when I was in primary school. I wanted to be a policewoman. The only challenge was back then, because it was a long time ago I was in primary school, but back then there was a minimum height requirement of five foot six inches to be a policewoman. It doesn't exist now, but it, it was back then. And I knew by the time I reached about 14 that I was never going to get to five foot six inches tall. I'm lucky if I'm about five foot three and three quarters right now. And and the three quarters is very important. So if I wasn't a policewoman, I'm not fit enough to be a policewoman now, but um, Mm -hmm. if I wasn't a police, what would I do? Probably something involving supporting people still. So whether that would be in public service sector, or, or in a charity sector, something like that, probably. So it would, it would definitely relate to supporting people, um, but not quite sure what. Maybe I would need to get fit and become <laughs> a policewoman. Maybe that's what I should well, do. Well, you're
0: definitely a people person and in the people profession now, so you're there. And... Um... Yeah, it would be interesting to be a police officer. But that height restriction thing, yeah, I'm sure I'm five foot two. And I think when I came out of college and uni, I was like, maybe I'll travel for a bit and be a flight attendant. But I was too short and had too many visible tattoos, apparently. So Emirates did not want me. So there we go. Interesting. Heightest, I think, is the problem there. (laughs) Well, yeah, that's a great way to end this episode. Thank you so much for joining me today, Debbie. I feel like we've covered some majorly important issues. I hope you've enjoyed our chat.
1: It's been an absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure, Amber.
0: Oh, well, thank you so much for joining us. I'm so pleased you enjoyed it. And that's us done. And before I'm back with another episode of Friends in Benefits, why not check out the latest issue of Reward Strategy online? We have a fantastic new platform, making it much easier to read and hear. Yes, that's right. We have audio now as well. But don't worry, it's not my voice. Not yet anyway. Right, speak to you soon. Thanks, guys.